Hey, Deserving Listeners, as some of you longtime listeners will know, one of my favorite things to do on this podcast is to read these case studies about therapists who broke ethical codes and were punished because of that. In these case studies, therapists will do all sorts of bad things, and then they get punished. And why would I want to read about that? I mean, I'm a therapist. Wouldn't it make me afraid? Why do I enjoy this so much? Well, I think I like to read these case studies because on one hand, it helps me to feel less anxious because when you read about the behaviors in these case studies, you realize that in order to be punished in this profession, you really have to do something pretty obviously wrong. And a lot of therapists, and I know this to be true because particularly around students and novice therapists, they're all terrified of breaking ethical codes and laws. One of the most common symptoms after taking an ethics class is all the students are just terrified of being a therapist because they're just like, there's so many rules and I don't really understand. And you're, you're telling me that it, to, to be a therapist, I could, I could get punished and, and, and do something wrong. And, and what I always tell them is, well, let's actually look at the cases where people actually get punished because the things that they're doing are pretty obvious. And so I think on one hand, when I read these cases, it's like, oh, to be punished at this job, you really have to go off the rails. And it, it relieves my anxiety to read about these, these cases. Another reason why I like to read these cases is because it's a good justice story. It's sort of like forensic files. I guess that's what it is. These cases are sort of like the forensic files of my profession. All right, let's get into it. So this first case is of a, of a sexual relationship with a client. And I want to tell people out there that there could be some triggers in here if you've been traumatized in this way. So you want to be real careful about this first case I talk about. Okay, so in this first, and, and by the way, all these case studies are from my malpractice insurance, which is CNA or HBSO, and they send out these these briefs, these case studies, as a way of informing us: look, uh, stay away from this behavior because this will happen to you. All right. So the clinician that was insured by my malpractice insurance was a substance abuse counselor in this case, and this man owned and was the executive director of a private counseling practice. So this is an owner and the executive director of a counseling practice, maybe a little agency, probably a little substance abuse counseling agency, and he was a substance abuse counselor. The client was a 40-year-old female and recently convicted of several criminal offenses, including drug possession. And she was on probation and ordered to participate in substance abuse treatment. So again, 40-year-old female, recently convicted, probation, ordered to participate in substance abuse treatment. Okay, so when treatment began, the insured counselor, the, the drug counselor, was assigned to evaluate and treat the client, and the, weekly fee, and the weekly fee was $50. After about two months of treatment, the client told the counselor that she was unable to afford the fee. The counselor essentially intimated that she would have to have sex with him to pay for the services. So let's just pause here for a second and really imagine the psychopathy involved in, in this. This is a, a, a counselor, someone who supposedly is in it to help people, to get people back on their feet, to help people recover and charge money for it. Uh, a, a woman is down on her luck. She's been convicted. She's ordered to go to substance abuse treatment. She's presumably trying to get clean. And after two months of treatment, she's like, you know, I can't, I can't afford this. And he says, well, I guess you're just going to have sex. You're just going to have to have sex with me in order to pay. Now, I don't know. They didn't go into detail, but it's, there's a pretty good likelihood that the woman was thinking, well, if I don't have sex with him, then I won't get treatment. And if I don't get treatment, I'm in violation of my probation and I might have to go back to detention. I don't know if that's the case, but it seems like it's possible. So they began having sex at the office at the end of every session. So just imagine this one. The woman shows up for therapy and or for counseling, drug and alcohol counseling, and they do their regular session. And at the end of the session, they have sex every single time as payment for the, the service. And then that relationship evolved into a full-blown sexual relationship that 
was not connected to the drug and alcohol counseling. And this went on for several months. After several months, the client reported the counselor's conduct to a case manager at the probation office. And the Department of Corrections filed a complaint on behalf of her with the state. And an investigation happened. They pulled the records. They also pulled all of the counselor's phone records. And here's what they decided to do. They permanently revoked the counselor's license in the interest of protecting the public. So they permanently took away his license, meaning that he could never get his license back. And this is one of the most severe things that a department, a state department will do. And they also found in this case that the costs associated with defending him exceeded the policy limits. So all insurance policies have a limit to how much they will pay out to defend you. And this malpractice, so malpractice does two things. People usually associate malpractice with a settlement, you know, like a surgeon makes a mistake and then the family sues the surgeon for $5 million or something. So there are two costs associated with that. One is the $5 million if they're found liable. And the other cost is for all the lawyers because most people don't have $100,000 or more laying around to pay for all the lawyers' costs. And so usually these malpractice suits will, or the malpractice insurance will cover the lawyers' costs, uh, a percentage or some sort of policy around that, and also the, the settlement cost. And so the costs associated with just defending the counselor exceeded the policy limits. And so what this means is that the counselor probably had to pay out of pocket to pay for the extra fees associated with defending himself. And so, yeah, he has a permanent revocation of his license. Now, for me, and that was it. That was all they did to him. For me, though, I think he should have been criminally charged. Uh, to do something like this uh, should be a crime. In some states, it is a crime. I don't know for drug and alcohol counselors, but, and I'm not a super expert on this, so I shouldn't speak out of my butt. But the point is, is I think this person should be locked up based on the information that I have before me. Maybe there's some circumstances, but come on. To have sex with a client, one, that's not okay. Two, to coerce a client because they're in a position where they can't pay for services. That's just, I mean, how, how is that not a crime? I mean, it's just blackmail. I don't know. Anyway, so in this brief, in this uh, case uh, provided by my malpractice insurance, they talk about different percentages. So what they find here is that 32% of all professional liability claims, according to them, involve allegations of sexual and romantic interactions or relationships with current clients, partners of clients, or family members of clients. So let's just pause and think about this for a second. So of all liability claims, meaning that when someone claims damage or malpractice of a insured counselor of some, some kind, so you have drug and alcohol counselors, marriage and family therapists, licensed professional counselors, psychologists, this kind of thing. 32% of all the claims involve sexual misconduct of some sort, either having sex with clients or partners of clients or family members of clients. So again, when students in my university take ethics, ethics class and they're paranoid about like, you know, one of the things that uh, interns, novice therapists will be real paranoid about is like, what if a client gives me a, a gift? You know, what if my client gives me like a $5 Starbucks card? What do I do? And, you know, have I broken some kind of law? And I'm always like, well, maybe, but you're not going to get punished for it. <laughs> I mean, just because in my profession, we're not, ex we're not supposed to take essentially tips from clients. We're not supposed to take gifts. It sets up a expectation there that we just don't want to involve ourselves in. But in a pinch or in some special circumstances, accepting gifts is actually the ethical thing to do. For example, the example I always give is I was working with this family, in-home family therapy, and they were rural Mexican immigrants and were in a pretty uh, unsafe situation. And they were having trouble with one of their kids. And I went into the home to help out. And I did a lot of helping them just understand how to navigate society in a lot of ways. And I spent a lot of time with the parents just bonding with them. And then one day they 
said, and the, and the the therapy was free to them because it was paid for by the government. And one day they they brought me some tamales. And if you've ever had tamales, like homemade tamales, tamales, it's just like they're just so good. <laughs> so they give me this, you know, aluminum foil wrapped bunch, a whole bunch. I think it was like a dozen or something warm tamales. And I'm like. Oh, because normally what I'll say is, oh, no, thank you. I, I don't because when I would do in-home therapy, a lot of times people felt like they had to give me things. I'm like, oh, don't worry about me. I'm OK. I'm at work. It's fine. And they give me these tamales. And in this in this split second, I'm thinking, OK, normally I'd say no. But this family, the look in their eyes and what they're telling me is they appreciate me a lot and they don't have anything to give me because they're so disenfranchised. They're so poor. They're so marginalized. And they just want to give me something. And they made me food, right? They didn't spend money on me. And I thought I could give the gift to them by accepting this gift. And so I accepted it and felt really, you know, really warmed my heart that they would do that. I mean, this is, I don't know, 20 years ago, I still remember it. And I also ate the crap out of those tamales because they were good. <laughs> uh, and I told them, you know, and I said, you know, but don't give me any more because it's usually not a custom of therapy. But thank you so much. And I really have that's all I've been eating at the time. Twenty years ago, I, I, I didn't have a lot of money to spend on any kind of food. And so just having anything homemade and, and good was uh, quite a treat for me. <laughs> I mean, I can still see them in my mind's eye, 20-year-old tamales. Anyway, so uh, I'll have students that will be going to ethics class, and, they'll, and they're told that they can't accept gifts, which is you know generally true. And they're paranoid about going to prison if they accept a $5 gift card from a client around Christmas time. And what I'll tell them is like, okay, let me give you, let me put this in perspective. Uh, a, a third of all professional liability claims are when people have sex with their clients or a partner of a client or a family member of a client. So accepting a $5 gift card from your client is a far cry from having sex with your client. So I think you're okay. Now, maybe there's a problem there and let's talk about it for sure. There's a way to communicate to people about not accepting gift cards and this sort of thing. But, you know, the, the ethics police aren't going to lock you up anytime soon. Okay, so let's go on to another case here. This is the second case. This is a case of bad boundaries. The insured clinician was a marriage and family therapist, from what I can tell, 25 years of experience in working at an agency. So, again, a marriage and family therapist like myself 25 years into the profession like myself <laughs> and working at an agency, which is not like myself. The therapist was treating two children for acting out because they started acting out and you know having bad behaviors because their father had died. So the mother, the widow, brought the two children in because the father died and the children were acting out, quote unquote. So the family comes in, the, the mother comes in, with the kids and which and they didn't give the ages ages of the kids but I'm guessing they're you know preteen and as is customary the intake forms were completed by the mother so normally in therapy when you bring in children the parents are the one consenting the treatment and they're the ones filling out all the forms okay so and on those forms the children were the only ones listed as clients this is important for later so the two children were identified as clients and the mother was not identified as a client. All right. So they do three years of therapy. And during these three years, the children were sent, uh, the, the children were seen together by the therapist. Sometimes they were seen separately by the therapist sometimes. And the mother was always present at these sessions. So again, this is pretty normal too. And I'm guessing actually, if the mother was always present, the children are probably pretty young. I'm guessing the kids were like four and six or something like this. That that because if a kid's ten, usually the parent isn't always present. But if you're if you're counseling a four year old, usually the parent is always present. 
Okay, so three years of therapy, sometimes both the kids are together, sometimes it's just one of the kids, but the mother is always there in the session with the therapist. And some meetings are with the mother by herself. And from the records, it was clear that the therapist did not consider the mother to be a client. So let me pause here, and maybe this would be helpful to clinicians out there, and hopefully you know all this stuff. But So we have two types of people that we talk to professionally as clinicians. One are clients, and two are collateral contacts. So what, what I always quiz my novice clinicians on is, what is a client? What is the definition of a client and what is the definition of a collateral contact? So a collateral contact is someone that you talk to that will give you information about your client or someone in connection with your client that you need to talk to to facilitate treatment. And there's a variety of people. You could talk to the client's physician or the client's psychiatrist or the client's roommate if there's a suicide a contract you need to do where you need to reach out to the roommate to make sure that, that the roommate is involved in the suicide prevention plan um, if the you know the client wants the your roommate to be involved. So these are people connected to the client that you would talk to. And what I always quiz people on, particularly in situations like this where a mother brings in the kids, how do you determine if the mother is a client or a collateral contact? This is important to determine for a variety of ethical reasons, which we'll get into later with this case. And I get a lot of blank stares. Now, I don't get a lot of blank stares anymore because I I quiz them periodically about this. But the answer is clients are the people that you're treating. And there's a lot of different nuances legally and ethically to this. But generally speaking, at its core, clients are people that we treat. So let's look at another profession. Let's look at dentistry. Okay. So if my mom brings me in to the dentist and I'm the one who has the cavity – And the dentist proceeds to treat the cavity on my tooth, but my mom is always there. Is the mom a patient of the dentist? No, I am the patient and my mother is a collateral contact. My mother is connected to me and the dentist might have to talk to my mother about like making sure I brush my teeth and that kind of thing. But I am definitely the patient and the mother is definitely not the patient. Also, Let's say in that same scenario, let's take it a little ridiculous, where the dentist notices as my mother is smiling that my mom also has a cavity on her front tooth. Does the dentist just push my mom into a chair and pull out her tooth? No. The dentist says, huh, I notice you might have something on your tooth. Do you want me to help you with that? And then my mother could say yes or no. And if my mother says no, then the dentist says, well, I recommend you have that looked at, but okay. So at that point, the dentist was asking, do you want to be a patient of mine or not? I'm recommending that you allow me to investigate, but you have to consent to that first. It makes total sense, right? Dentists don't walk down the street, see cavities or signs of dental decay, and just push people down and perform oral surgery on them in the middle of the street against their will. Well, therapists do also, also, therapists do not provide therapy to people without their consent. We do not push people down and provide therapy to them, okay? So when the mother comes in, we have to determine, is that mother a collateral contact, someone that I'm not treating, or is it someone that I'm treating, or is it someone that I think I should treat? And as a family therapist, I always try to work with the mothers in situations like this. I can do so much more good if I can help the mother and because the mother's going to be with the kid all the time and I'm only going to be with the kids an hour a week. And especially with young kids, it's really slow going with stuff like this. I can do stuff for sure, but how accelerated would it be if I could also involve the mother, not only in the sessions, like this family was dealing with grief. The father had died. Imagine if I had the kids and the mother sitting down, playing a game and grieving in a four-year-old way, and the mother was there. And then the mother learns how to do that and can translate that into behaviors and help for the kids at home. And 
when I meet with the mother alone, which this therapist did, I can actually help the mother not only grieve her, the loss of her husband, but I can also help her on how to parent the kids as they go through this grief. But not every clinician operates that way. Some people don't want to work with the mother. They just want to work with the kids. I don't recommend that in most situations, but it's a judgment call, and and there, there you go. Now, sometimes mothers in this situation don't want to, you know, I'll offer it up. I, this never happened to me, by the way, but, you know, I understand that it could happen where I'd be like, so I'm a family therapist, and I'd... I'm glad you brought your kids in for me to evaluate and to help. And I really want to involve you in this treatment. And I really want to involve you in the overall evaluation and assessment and help, meaning that I want to help you help the kids. And in order to do that, you have to consent to being a client as well. Not only do you have to consent to me treating your kids, because again, these kids are younger, so they they don't necessarily consent or officially to treatment or not. I still recommend that you try to get children's consent to treat them, even though you don't legally have to in my area. Um, but I would say that uh, you know you're you're bringing in your kids and you're consenting to me treating your kids. But I'd love it if you would also consent to me helping you sometimes. Now I understand we're really focusing on the kids, but I want to occasionally check in with you. And in order for me to help you out, you have to consent to treatment. Otherwise, you're just a collateral contact, meaning I can basically only get information from you. And I can, I can inform you about what's happening in therapy because you have that right since these are you know, children. But I can't help you. I can't, I can't really get into things with you because that's, that's treatment. And in order for treatment to happen, you have to consent to treatment and you have to also sign in the dotted line. When I bring it to people on that way, 100% of the time, parents would say, okay, yeah, that sounds good. So in this situation, we have a, a therapist who did meet with the mother, not only with the kids, but also alone. So if, if some of the sessions were with the mother by the, by, you know, alone, we have to assume that treatment was happening there. And that would be good treatment. You're empathizing with the mom, you're talking about parenting with the mom, you're problem solving, you're allowing the mom to talk about her grief, you're helping the mother heal from a variety of things, you're helping the mother deal with the frustration of a variety of things going on. This is three years of therapy, so there's probably a lot there. That's good treatment. But the therapist did not consider the mother to be a client and thus did not get any of the consent forms signed or anything like that and didn't write anything in the in the progress notes indicating that the mother was a client. This happens all the time in my profession of marriage and family therapy, and it drives me bonkers. And even to the point where some agencies, if not many agencies actually in this in my area, prevent my students, my interns, from actually getting consent from the mother in a situation like that. So I can only speculate as to why they do this, but what they do is, you know, these on-site, these, you know, my interns, they intern in the community and so at the community mental health agencies. And these agencies have this policy that when a mother brings their kid in, that therapists are prevented from actually asking the mother, look, I'm a family therapist. Do you consent to being a client too? Now, as I said, that is the superior form of therapy. Every expert agrees that at least that should be on the table. And in order for that to be formalized in an ethical and legal way, you have to have the mother sign a consent form saying that they consent and you put that in the file. Well, a lot of these agencies don't allow that to happen. They don't allow you to treat the mother. They say, no, you have to treat just the kids. And there's various reasons, I think, because of funding and the way the system pays for sessions and just the culture of anti-family therapy. It just drives me nuts. But anyway... So that's what this, this therapist did. The therapist saw the mother but did not consider the mother to be, to be a client, didn't have the mother sign any papers. Okay, so at some point, the mother and the therapist entered into some sort of business relationship. So they didn't talk about it in the case, but some sort of business relationship. So typical things would be like maybe the, the mother is a financial guru, 
And the therapist is like, ooh, you know, I could use some help with my finances. And the mother's like, well, I could help you with that. And so they – or the mother was a, a real estate agent and the therapist's like, oh, you know, I'm actually trying to sell my house. Maybe you could help me or something like this. Okay. So this is a pretty big no-no under most circumstances. You, you can get away with some instances of this under very limited circumstances. A lot of buttoning up has to be done around a lot of consultation, a lot of oversight, really. But generally speaking, this is just not um, something that we do as, as therapists. And if you don't know, the reason why is because of the following reason, which I'll get into here. So the mother and therapist entered into some sort of business relationship, and over several months, the business relationship got bad. The two started to conflict about their business relationship, not their client-therapist relationship. The mother believed that the therapist owed her money, and the mother made several attempts to collect the money from the therapist. The therapist refused to pay the mother for a variety of reasons, and their relationship became hostile. So in this business relationship, the mother's like, hey, you owe me money, therapist. And the therapist is like, no, I do not owe you money. Okay. So under normal circumstances, you'd be like, well, let's take it to civil court. Let's work this out. Let's see what we can do. But now you're in a situation where the you're in business with a client of yours or you're in business with a therapist of yours. And, you, and it's been three years of therapy. Okay. So – at, at this point, the, the therapist actually refused to allow the mother to attend therapy because of the hostility between them. So just imagine this. The therapist is like, okay, because our business relationship has gone bad and we now hate each other, you are completely not allowed to come to therapy with your kids. And if you want me to treat your kids, fine. But you're not allowed in session because of this other thing that happened outside of therapy in this business relationship. Okay. So obviously at this point, the mother files a complaint with the state licensing board and also a professional malpractice lawsuit. So if you don't know, there are two major things you can do as a client against a clinician. One is, is you can report them to the state licensing board, which can uh, take licenses away. So if you don't know this, as with a driver's license, um, you know, let's, let's just do driver's license for a second. Okay. So you apply for a driver's license, you have to, you know, pass a test and demonstrate blah, blah, blah. And you pay the fee and you get your license. And if you break some sort of law, like speeding or something, then they can impose some kind of uh, sanction against you, some kind of fee. And in extreme cases, they can actually take your license away such that you can no longer drive legally. Well, the same is true about a license to practice. I have a license as well to practice. And if I do something wrong and the, the state decides to punish me, they can punish me in a variety of ways. And they can also take my license away or they can, you know, temporarily take my license away or they could take it away and then say you have to do these things to get it back. Okay, so that's the first thing that the mother did that she complained with the state licensing board. The second thing you can do as a, as a client is you can sue the therapist, the clinician for damages essentially. You can say you owe me money because of what you did to me, you know, like it's – I don't know, some sort of legal term there. And the reasons that the mother filed the complaint was because of abandonment and breaking professional boundaries. So abandonment meaning that the therapist was like, I, you can't come to therapy anymore because of what happened. You, you know, I'm not going to be your therapist anymore. And the, the client felt abandoned and also breaking professional boundaries by engaging in this outside relationship. Okay. So the allegations against the, against the counselor, against the therapist included abandonment, client neglect, failure to obtain client's consent for change of family to individual therapy, failure to maintain professional standards, and entering into a non-professional relationship with a client. The licensing board obtained the client file, obviously. They obtained the therapist's personal cell phone records, which a licensing board can do. And they also, the licensee board also interviewed uh, the therapist's coworkers to find out about her, I guess. 
the findings from the licensing, licensing board was that the, the file, so when I say file, if you're not a clinician, whenever you go to a, a physician, whenever you go to a psychiatrist, whenever you go to a therapist, that's licensed, by the way, they, they have to keep a file on you. They have to keep notes on everything that happened, essentially. Sometimes the notes are pretty brief and not very detailed, and sometimes they're they can be very detailed, but but there's a client file. There's a record of you as a as a client, and there's a record of every meeting and and maybe even every telephone call. So what the finding was was you know the state licensing board is reviewing the file, and they're like, whoa, this is really incomplete. the The file doesn't have enough in here, and the file is insufficient, and the file failed to meet professional documentation standards. This is really common. Whenever uh, therapists get complained against and the file is pulled or the file is pulled into court somehow, uh, I would say half the time, maybe more, it's found that these therapists have insufficient records. Keeping records and documentation is a pretty complicated thing, and graduate schools do not spend enough time on this. We're getting a little better because there's all these online services because, in, you know, in the past, you just had to write it by hand or type it out or something, right? Well, today, a lot of clinicians actually use these online services where the, you, you, you post all of your progress notes to a website, essentially, and it's encrypted and it's HIPAA compliant and this kind of thing. But – and these services will actually walk you through – the process. They'll say, okay, you know, write, make sure you write about this, make sure you write about that. It's sort of like when you do um, TurboTax online or H&R Block online or something. You don't have to be a tax expert because the website kind of walks you through it. And, and some of these websites do that, but some of them don't. Anyway, so a lot of people are having insufficient records because it's a pretty complicated thing. And it took me years, really, to figure out all the nuances to the ethics and the laws that really influence what we're supposed to be writing and what we're not supposed to be writing. Essentially, I had to I had to read and learn a lot of cases in which people were sued for various different reasons. And there's just so many things to think about. And so we just don't spend enough time. There's barely any class time spent for counselors and therapists on this topic. And you have a lot of people who just have no idea what they're doing. And then, even if they kind of do know what they're doing, after a couple decades of practice, a lot of people just kind of drift because of laziness or something, ignorance, to this mode where they barely keep any records. So anyway, this person was found to have an incomplete file, which doesn't surprise me. Now, what they also found, the licensing board, was that even though the counselor thought that the mother was not a client, the licensing board says the mother was indeed a client because the therapist was treating the mother. And you remember, we were talking about all those individual sessions. And they're like, um, whether or not you knew it or not, therapist, that mother was your client because you were treating them. And of course, consent was never obtained from the mother because the therapist didn't know to do that. And it's such a simple step. I always talk about this with my with my trainees because because so let me back up. So one of the things that happens is, uh, you know, a mother will show up, and whenever you're meeting a new client, there's a lot of tension because you don't know who you're going to be talking to. There's a wide variety of the sort of people who show up in your office. You don't know what situation they're in. You don't know how desperate they're going to be. And to be honest, you're trying to make them like you because. You either for self-esteem reasons or even just for your bottom line, you, this is your living. You're essentially you're like a restaurant, and someone's coming into your restaurant. You want to please them because you you want them to choose you as their service provider, right? And so there there can be a, a fair amount of anxiety, particularly from novice clinicians. And the mother brings in the kids, and and the mother's like, okay, I, there's all these problems, you know, acting out. That was the problem that the kids had. And so, you know, the kids are acting out. And so you want to spend a lot of time as a therapist really listening to the mom. You're like, oh, okay, I'm listening. And it takes a, a, a real professional to pause the mom and say, okay, I just want to talk about something for a second. 
Now, I'm a family, you know, and then you go into your whole spiel where you take control, where you're saying, I'm a family therapist and here's my approach and I recommend that you engage in therapy as well. How do you feel about that? You might have a back and forth and that's, okay, you know, here's here's what I can do. And you have to be pretty good on your toes and you have to be pretty good at describing what we do. And again, uh, with that topic, therapists get no education. Therapists get zero education about how to talk about their profession, how to talk about their service. And clinicians can, especially novice clinicians, can just be terrible when when they're asked a question like, what are you doing? You know, like a, sometimes they'll get a client that'll just be like, what are you doing to me? You know, a client will just ask that question and, and, the, and the therapist, they just don't know what to say. And then what will happen is the therapist will be like, I hate that client. And then they come to me and they're like, I have this client that keeps questioning me about what I'm doing, and I'm really, it really pisses me off. And I'm like, well, what question do they ask? They're like, well, they they keep confronting me on what I'm doing in therapy, and you know, calling me out and asking me why I'm doing what I'm doing, and it, and it, it's just a bunch of crap. And I'm like, well, what do you say? <laughs> now, of course, I get it because these you know, trainees of mine, these supervisees of mine, have never been trained on how to answer that question. And so, in this instance, when you're having to take control of the session and actually talk with the mother about the bigger picture of treatment, you have to know how to have that conversation. You have to be pretty good on your toes. You have to understand the profession. You have to know if the mother's like, well, wait a second, I don't want treatment. You have to know how to respond to that in a convincing way or in a way that allows flexibility anyway. And so a lot of people, they just, they just avoid it. And there's like, well, I, I don't want to bother the mother. I, I don't want to bother. Well, how is it bothering the mother to give her a service that she wants? And like I said, when I uh, give my spiel to the, to the parents, they always agree. I've never had a parent say no. And what I also say is, imagine if you go through this process with the parents and they're like, no, I don't want treatment. Well, wouldn't that be good to know in the beginning? Wouldn't you want to know that right from the start that the parent's like, absolutely not. I do not want to be a client. Then you can just be like, okay, well, I gave it my best shot. And I guess I'm just, you know, I guess the parent is a collateral contact and I'll have minimal contact with the parents. Okay, well, you know, they, they told me. It's something that you want to know. Anyway, so because the therapist did not do, because I'm guessing that if we went back in time while this therapist was treating this family for three years and we asked the therapist, hey, uh, what are you doing with the mom? And the therapist, well, you know, I'm meeting with the mom alone sometimes. Well, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about parenting. We're talking about her, the grief, the, the loss of her husband. And we're talking about the stress she's going on. Okay, so you're talking about all those things. That sounds like therapy to me. Is that therapy? And the, the therapist might say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to help the mom. I'm trying to help her out. Okay, have you have you uh, obtained consent to treatment from the mother? Uh, well, no, I, I haven't. Well, why? <laughs> well, because she brought the kids. And, you know, the kids are the clients. I'm like, okay, the kids are the clients, but it also sounds like the mom is a client. Well, you know, I talk with the mom about the kids. Well, okay, but you're still talking with the mom and you're helping the mom, right? Yeah, I'm helping the mom. Are you helping her professionally? Uh, well, what do you mean? Well, are are you a clinician helping someone? <laughs> yes, I'm a clinician helping. That's treatment, my friend. And so you need to get consent before you engage in that. So you need to have them agree and on the dotted line that they are a client and the fact that you're treating someone without getting their consent is akin to a dentist pushing someone down and performing a procedure on someone's mouth without getting their consent. That's what's happening and that's how the courts will see it and that's how the court saw it and that's how the licensing board saw it in this instance. Okay. Can you tell I've talked a lot about this over the years with my trainees? And it's because there's so much confusion and these agencies are telling my trainees the exact opposite, by the way. Anyway, so not all the agencies, but some. Um, okay. So the, the licensee board was like, okay, your, your file was incomplete. The mother was a client and you didn't get uh, uh, consent. And the, the discipline from the licensing board was 80 hours of ethics training. That's a lot of training, by the way, 80 hours. That's like, I don't know, it's, it's probably, what, 10? It's probably like 15 days, 15 full days of, of classes. Anyway, um, and also to practice under supervision by an approved supervisor in marriage and family therapy for two years. 
So that's this is a really common disciplinary action by a licensing board is ethics training and practice under supervision. Now this thing, I actually will tell people to, to help to calm them down because as I was saying earlier, a lot of novice clinicians are paranoid and just terrified of breaking some ethical code or breaking some law. And what I tell them is, you know, the things I've been telling them, but I also say, but also sleep well at night knowing that the the very worst thing that you're probably capable of, uh, you know, obviously don't have sex with a client, but if, if you're going to do something bad, like perform treatment on someone that hasn't consent, consented to it and engage in a relationship outside of therapy, you know, remember this is the case where the mom and the therapist had a business relationship. So even if you do something as stupid as that, the only thing that will happen to you is 80 hours of ethics training and you're, you have to practice under supervision, which actually could be pretty cool because y- you probably get to hire your own supervisor in that situation. So you could actually hire someone that – now, it costs money. It's probably going to cost a lot of money and the ethics training is going to cost money and time. But that's great. You get it. You get ethics training. You get supervision. It's not the end of the world. It's not like someone comes and locks you up in prison. Okay. So even when you do something as stupid as what this therapist did, it's the punishment still isn't that bad. So, you know, novice therapists out there, try not to worry too much. Do your job. Learn the ethics. Consult all the time. Make sure you're buttoned up with your records. Make sure that you, you know, obtain consent and have those conversations with your clients. And go to ethics training. Have good mentors. Have good experts in your corner. But also know that if you make a pretty big mistake, the punishment usually isn't dire. It's not going to ruin your life. This person was absolutely allowed to continue treating people, and their life probably didn't change that much after the situation was settled. So with the licensing board's findings, the insurance determined that the therapist had only a 10% chance of winning the civil lawsuit. So remember, the mother both filed a complaint with the state – and did a, a, a civil suit, you know, sued the therapist for damages. And because the, and the licensing board hearing was first, and so the licensing board, and that usually that's the way it goes. So usually the civil suit will wait until the licensing board, at least from my understanding. And the licensing board found that the therapist was guilty, essentially. That's not the words they use, but that they were negligent. And so the malpractice insurance, my malpractice insurance, which was shared by this therapist, looked at the situation. Was like, oh boy, you know, given the fact that the licensing board uh, decided against our client, the therapist, chances are the civil suit is also going to go against our client, and we have a we only have a ten percent chance of winning this case, and so we're going to settle. So they decided to settle. And they found that the total expense to the settlement and for the lawyers for the settlement was $178,000. So the, the, the mother probably sued the therapist for like $150,000 or something and, and got that money. And the cost to defend the therapist for the board complaint, the lawyer's fees, was $13,000. So rough estimate. I'm just guess, guessing here, $150,000, the malpractice insurance had to pay $150,000 to the mother, and they had to pay about $50,000 in lawyer's fees for the state board complaint and for the, the settlement. Okay. So obviously, there are many recommendations here to be made, and my malpractice and myself provide these recommendations. One is always consult. Have a mentor, have experts. Whenever you're doing things along these lines, you need to consult with someone. And don't just consult with anybody. Consult with an expert. There's a, I see a lot of clinicians online on Facebook consulting with each other, consulting with non-experts. And this is not a good idea. It's the blind leading the blind. Do not just look to someone. And some people, I've seen people online make egregious claims about what is ethical and what is not. In fact, on the majority, I would say that half of all the ideas rattling around in clinicians' heads are in error. <laughs> I mean, there's so much misinformation out there, and I've seen it all. 
And it changes by state to state, changes by profession. It's pretty, it's pretty complicated. So you need to actually have in your corner or on your speed dial someone who you know to be an expert. Now, what constitutes an expert? Now, some might say, well, what constitutes an expert is a professor, right, of ethics. Not always. I know professors of ethics, you know, people who teach ethics classes, to be sometimes terrible experts and terrible guidance or t- terrible uh, guides when it comes to the ethical codes. Um, I've seen that a lot in, in my travels. I've seen some professors who are excellent experts. So how can the average clinician determine? Well, here's, here's, my, little, here's my little shortcut to determining a good expert from a bad expert. Good experts have case law. Good experts have contact or have read actual cases that went to the board or went to court because this is where the things get determined, not amongst ourselves. There's a lot of ideas among clinicians. Like there's this idea, one, one common example in my field is that when we get subpoenaed, so let's say that there's a, a divorce, for example, and you're, uh, say you're treating the wife and there's your wife, the wife is getting divorced from her husband and the husband's lawyer subpoenas you to come to court and to testify. And you're like, I don't want to do that. You know, the husband, the husband, I don't even know the husband. I'm treating the wife and the husband's lawyer is subpoena is subpoenaing me. Uh, I don't, I don't want to do that. Well, and I remember hearing this early in my career and believing it was that unless a subpoena comes from a judge, you don't have to go. And so you can just ignore it. This is not true. You can't ignore any subpoena. You have to respond to all subpoenas. Now, you can get out of it. There's various different ways to get out of it. I won't go into all the details. But that's just one of those things that among lay clinicians or clinicians that are lay experts on the law and ethics, they will rattle. They'll have these ideas that will just permeate through the culture. You know, it's just like all the the weird ideas that people have in, in society, like flat earth, for example, you know, it's, there's all these ideas that just kind of rattle around and echo around in certain little pockets. And, and clinicians are really bad about this. And the, the fact is, is that there's very few people that actually go to court. Now, why is that? Well, because we rarely get sued. We rarely have complaints uh, waged against us. It's pretty rare for a clinician to have any kind of thing like this happen. And so very few of us actually have contact with what actually happens in courts and in boardrooms, in, in you know, licensing boardrooms. And so when, when you're looking for an expert, find someone that has actually been there or, or frequently reads those cases because there are plenty of people who think they're experts but don't have contact with the actual decision makers because that's ultimately what we're worried about, right? What we're worried about is what does the licensing board think? What does the judge think? Because sometimes courts of law, particularly in civil suits, they, they adjudicate in some very weird ways that don't make sense to us as clinicians, but it makes sense to the courts. And so that's who we need to – we at least need to know what's going on over there, right? Anyway, so you need to have an expert. Now, how do you find those people? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Ask around. Uh, sometimes if you talk with an ethics professor and you say, do you know anyone who actually works? Sometimes looking for a a, um, a lawyer slash counselor, those kinds of, uh, kinds of people can be great. Anyway, the other thing is obviously get trained in ethics and law. Go to trainings from actual people who know what they're talking about. Also, clearly define who is considered the client. Um, also, be mindful of multiple relationships. Don't involve yourself in multiple relationships, meaning don't have business partnerships with your clients. And, al- and also know how to document well. My malpractice actually found that 5% of licensing protection claims involved allegations regarding bad documentation. 5% of the malpractice cases with my, mal- with my insurance, they said involves bad documentation. So that's a pretty high rate of bad documentation. All right, let's go on to another case. But first, let's take a break. All right, this next case is about documentation. This should be a short one, actually. Okay, so the insured clinician is a licensed mental health counselor. So licensed mental health counselor. And the client, female, 
14 years old, being treated for depression, anxiety, PTSD, and dissociative identity disorder. For some reason, the client suddenly terminated and the client filed a complaint with the state board. The client claimed that the counselor had been verbally abusive in a session. So we have a teenage client who suddenly terminates and then you know, f- files a complaint with the licensing board saying, my counselor was verbally abusive to me in a session. So in the case description, they didn't go into detail, so I don't know if this was a valid complaint or not. But anyway, the state board uh, investigated. They got the client file, of course. And what they found in the client file was that there were no progress notes and no discharge summary. Because remember that the client suddenly terminated. There should be a discharge summary, a termination summary of some sort. The state board asked the counselor why, saying, why don't you have any progress notes? Why is there no discharge summary? And the counselor said that she does not write progress notes and she does not generally complete former discharge summaries. (laughs) So, uh, So they're like, okay. So the experts look into this and they find that it is absolutely unethical for a counselor to not have progress notes detailing all the things that it needs to detail. And they didn't discipline the counselor for the verbal abuse. I'm guessing that they found it was hard to figure out, you know, we have a a counselor said, client said situation and they didn't know what to do. But they definitely knew that the counselor did not have proper uh, documentation, which is a pretty slam dunk violation of the ethical codes. And the counselor was placed on probation for a year and required to complete continuing education on documentation and record keeping. So again, they were punished, but pretty light punishment, right? For for someone just to not, you know, as a policy, I don't write progress notes for my clients. This is egregious and laughable, but understand. I mean, I could, I can see this happening. I've heard attitudes like this from counselors before and they're caught red handed. And the only thing that happens is the counselor is placed on probation for a year, meaning that, uh, either that's like a, a temporary license. Well, I don't know what, pro, I don't know what probation means exactly. Usually what that means is look, as long as you don't do anything bad for this year, then you're okay. But if you do anything bad in this year, then you're in double trouble. Usually that's what I mean. And also required to complete continuing education on documentation and record keeping. The cost to my malpractice insurance to defend this counselor was $13,000. Okay. So the recommendations obviously are have proper documentation. (laughs) Not only for treatment purposes, but also to cover your ass, CYA, as they as they say, it, when it comes to pass and you have a complaint filed against you, you have to present your file. That's the first thing that happens. And if you don't have a file, then you have no way of defending yourself. You have no way of defending your treatment at all. You have no way of defending the fact that you're even talking to the person. <laughs> and in this in these progress notes in this file it needs to have the diagnosis and some general sense of a treatment plan and ongoing check-ins in the progress notes around the treatment plan and response to treatment any kind of consultations you had assessment of client safety risks the informed consent process session notes telephone calls with the client discharge summaries and so on so it all needs to be in there and again Not a lot of clinicians get uh, trained enough on this. And the thing I'll say to, uh, if you're a clinician listening, is it's up to you. You're going to get minimal education on this usually. Um, But even if you get pretty good education on this, it's still up to you to determine a system. It's up to you to really take the bull by the horns and say, I'm going to get good at, at knowing what to put in the file and knowing what not to. And what I say what not to is, You can get sued for not putting things in the file successfully, and you can be punished for putting too much in the file. And there are countless examples that I've worked with 
uh, trainees and supervisees on this, where there's court cases and it's all based on the fact that the clinician put too much detail in the client file. Let me just give you a random example. This isn't a real example, but so let's say that you have a you know a client, 25-year-old woman, and she comes in and you and her have a pretty good relationship. And uh, about six months into treatment, she starts talking about how she was sexually abused by her father. And you put in the session notes that she was sexually abused by her father. You just mentioned that. The client uh, discussed with me her traumatic history of being sexually abused by her father. And then let's say a year later, the client and you have a falling out. For some reason, the client just really doesn't like what you're doing and decides to c- complain against you. And the client, the the, uh, the the file is pulled and presented to the licensing, licensing board and everyone's reading it, the lawyers and the board and you know everyone's reading the file. And the client sees in the file now that it says explicitly that you wrote that the client was sexually abused by her father. And she is incredibly shamed by this, not because she should be shamed, but because there's a lot of stigma around stuff like that. And she has tremendous, she has a big problem with that information now being out there. The information is now being read by everybody. Now, in some circumstances, the client doesn't have any right at this point, because what are you going to do? But Sometimes I've seen situations where a client will be on the, you know, sort of teeter-tottering between suing the the therapist or not. Now, let me give you another example. Let's say that there's a uh, a divorce, like I said, and the the client your your client says, um, actually, I want the client file. And so you're okay. Here's the client file. And then the client submits the, 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 the file to the court and the husband, you know, she's divorcing the husband and the husband's looking at the file and all the lawyers are looking at the file. And it says in there that she was sexually abused by her dad. And now the, the dad the, or the, the husband is going to use that against her. You know, the husband's lawyers are going to say, oh, you were sexually abused by your dad and you're crazy. That's why you, don't, you shouldn't get uh, custody of the children. And now the wife, your client, is really angry at you for putting that in the file, for revealing too much information in the file, and, and then the, the wife, the client, decides to sue you for putting too much in the file. Now, it's hard for a client to win a case like this, but do you really want that to happen? <laughs> and that's a risk. And you don't have to put that detail in the, cli- in, in the file. You can put something like, we discussed the client's traumatic history. It's a safer s- statement to say. Now, sometimes you do want to put that detail, but sometimes you don't. My point is, is that you need to understand all the different risks involved in what you put in the file. And it's pretty complicated. And in order to really do that, you have to learn a lot of different details and a lot of different possibilities, possibilities that probably don't occur to you as a clinician at first. You have to hear about all these stories and, oh, okay, and Every time you're writing a session note, you have to have all those things in your mind as you're writing everything down. I need to put enough in, but I shouldn't put too much in. And what is that? What do I need to put in? What should I exclude? It's very important to know that. All the while, you don't want to be spending a half an hour on every session note, right? Uh, I always tell my uh, supervisees that if you're spending more than 30 seconds on a, on a client a session note, you're doing something wrong. You should be able to write a session note very quickly. You should be able to just off the top of your head go boom, 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 write you know, five, ten sentences, and you should be done. If you're spending a lot of time, you're wasting a lot of time. And so it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice. And it took me years to get practiced enough so that I could write my sessions really quick, my session notes really quick. Anyway, so those are three cases that I told you about. <laughs> the first one, the, the substance abuse counselor blackmailed the client in having sex with him and had his license revoked permanently and was not sued, apparently, at least according to the, the case brief. The second counselor was a marriage and family therapist who did not get consent from the mother 
and was uh, and also engaged in a business relationship with the client and was sued in civil court and also uh, had her well she had 80 hours of ethics training and practiced under supervision and then this third uh, mental health counselor apparently was accused of being verbally abusive to a client but then they found that there were no records <laughs> and then the counselor was placed on probation and required to complete education on how to do records. So that is that. And let me know what you think. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself. Well, actually, let me conclude with this. So if you're a clinician, I hope that this helped. That to hear cases like this, to hear me ramble about this, you know, it's always a good idea to have this kind of reminders about the, the, the topics. And there are many more topics, obviously. But if you're a client, you know, a lot of people, uh, client, clients out there will say to me, well, I don't want to hear stories like this because I'm thinking about going to therapy and I'm already worried about going to therapy. And if I hear about stories like this, it makes me not want to go to therapy because I'm worried that they're going to do something bad to me. Well, I'm here to tell you that the vast majority of clinicians do not do things like this. Or, yeah, maybe they don't keep records, but you don't know about that. But they're not, they're not likely to have sex with you, and they're not likely to engage in a business relationship with you. These are pretty egregious behaviors, and this is why we have these write-ups about them as sort of these stark examples of terrible behavior that gets, that gets called out. So the other thing I'll say is, Let's say you engage in a relationship with a therapist and you start noticing some boundary violations. And I've, you know, I've received emails from people for years and, and a lot of you have reached out to me with your stories, some slightly egregious and some terribly egregious. It happens. And the thing I'll say is at the first sign of something happening, um, you can always consult with another therapist about what's happening. You know, that's not a common practice, but I think it should be. You know, if, if, a, <clears throat> if a therapist says, hey, you know, I was thinking about joining business with you. Well, who should a client go to? I think going to uh, another therapist or some other expert would be a good idea, some kind of resource around that. Because how would, a, how would a client know that that was going to be a risk to them if the therapist doesn't inform them? Or at the very least, bring it up with your therapist and just say, so I, can you tell me all of the problems or the risks involved in what's happening right here? Because if, they, if the clinician can't answer that question very well, then again, it's a bad sign. Because there are a lot of situations as a marriage and family therapist for me where I will absolutely answer those questions and fully. I'll just say, okay, good. I'm glad you asked. Well, the risks are this and the pros and this and the cons are this. And here, is, here are your rights and here are my ethical responsibilities. And you can also always change therapists. If something really concerning or you're even mildly concerned and you're just like, eh, I think I want to try another therapist, you can always do that as well. So don't feel like if you start therapy and uh, that you have to stick with that person forever because you don't. You have the power, usually, depending on access, to change and to say, eh, I don't really feel. So I, the reason why I say, I'm not saying you should always jump ship at every, at every uh, concern, but my point is, is that when people are like, well, now I'm really scared to go to therapy. Well, you know, give it a try and watch what happens. And monitor what happens. Make sure you're watching out for your own interests. Make sure you're being treated well. Make sure that your clinician has good answers to things. And then, you know, proceed forward. And again, most therapists don't do anything like this. Most therapists, like I said, are terrified of taking a $5 gift as some massive ethical violation. You know, from one client once a year, they get they get one $5 gift card for for Starbucks from a client and and they're just crapping their pants. <laughs> and and I'm like, uh, yeah, okay, let's talk about it, but I don't think it's anything that bad. So, 
So that's what I'll say if you're a prospective client. The other thing I'll say here is that as a profession, if you're a professor or you're a supervisor or you're thinking about becoming a trainer of therapists, we really need to get more buttoned up about this sort of thing. There are a lot of buttoned up people for sure, for sure. And I feel like it's getting better over the years, but we have a long way to go. And we need to do what we can to make sure that we create a culture. It's really that. It's really creating a culture of being buttoned up, which the profession doesn't really come from, particularly marriage and family therapy and counseling. The master's level uh, professions come from a history and a culture of being pretty loose when it came to the law and the ethics. And it's getting better for sure than it was before. I mean, I, I'm old enough that I've been in the profession a long time. And I remember when I first became a therapist in the 90s, things were real loose. Like there was a lot of just very loose behavior and loose education at the time. And in 25 years, there's been a lot more professionalization of these fields. And there's pros and cons to that. I think it's mostly pro. But the con, there's cons like we kind of lose the heart and the, I don't know, the humanness of the profession. You know, when, when we become too buttoned up, then we, we're at risk of losing some of our humanity. Now, I absolutely will contend that we can be extremely buttoned up for the protection of our clients, you know, for the protection of the public while absolutely retaining our humanness because that's what clients need. Anyway. All right. Well, let me know what you think. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because they deserve it. You really, really do. 